We're on the seventh commandment today. And the seventh commandment, like the sixth and like the eighth, it's just two words. <laughs> just two words. Uh, but there are two words that pack a punch, that encompass so much, just like the sixth and the eighth. However, unlike the sixth and unlike the eighth, the sixth being don't murder, the eighth being don't steal, sixth and eighth being commandments that even our culture in a general way would say, yeah, that's good. We don't want you murdering. We don't want you stealing. Unlike those two, we don't readily appreciate the seventh commandment. And our culture doesn't readily rejoice in the seventh commandment. In fact, all the way back in 1943, C.S. Lewis Speaking his addresses over the radio, which became mere Christianity, he said these words, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. Wait, 1943, well, you can go back to 1692 when the Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, who writes a book on the Ten Commandments, he approaches this commandment, just says this straight out, adultery is the reigning sin of our times, 1692. But we can go back much further than that. In fact, we could really say this, that though access to sexual sin is easier than it's ever been, and though sexual sins are probably more socially acceptable than they've ever been, at no time in the history of the world have humans done a very good job controlling their sex drives or using the gift of sexual intimacy in its God-designed, edifying, and life-giving way. We just probably have never done a very good job with that. And we ourselves know this really personally. Those of us who've been around for a while, and many of us carry around scars and, and shame and ongoing struggles in this area. We've witnessed the damaging fallout in family and we observe the abusive tendencies and dynamics in our culture and maybe too close to home. We know how serious this command is. So God says to us in his seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Literally, it's the word not and a word that means sexual intercourse with the wife or betrothed of another man. And of course, what's said about the man is also said about the woman. So the main point, that the main emphasis, the stress of this commandment is to protect and preserve the institution of marriage and the gift of marital sexual intimacy. The command, like we've said in our rules for interpreting the Ten Commandments, the negative requires the positive. It's to defend this in order to delight in it within marriage. Defend it and delight it. So three points, what it counters and what it cherishes and how it culminates. What it counters, what it cherishes, and what it culminates, how it culminates. So the chief thing of the seventh commandment, the chief thing it counters is breaking your marriage covenant by having sex with a person, not your wife or not your husband. 
And so we look at it through, say, the lens of Proverbs 2.17 and Malachi 2.14. And so Proverbs 2.17 is a rebuke to an adulteress, a lady. It says this, she forsakes the the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Well, then God turns to the adulterer in Malachi 2.14 and says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Notice the covenantal language here. So in essence, God's saying, look, you two made a covenant together. You made a covenant before me, notice in Proverbs 27, the covenant of her God. It's why at a wedding, the husband and wife-to-be look forward when they make their first vow. So as you made a covenant together with one another and with God, which is a permanent, public, legal promise to express marital love exclusively to each other and to no one else. So having sex with someone else means you forsake this covenant and are faithless to the marriage covenant you made before me and before your spouse. You broke it. The purpose and the point of this commandment is to counter that, to warn against that, to beseech God's people not to go there. And we know the devastating effects of this. Now, even as we say this, we also want to say The devastating effects, yes, but not irredeemable. Because the point of the gospel is, again, that God's grace for us is much more abundant than even our worst sins. And when we come into God's presence, we have to know that. That the true husband came after the bride who was faithless, you and me. Nevertheless, we look at the devastating effects of this sin. It violates the trust that a husband and wife have built together. It wounds both spouses emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. It could lead to dissolving the marriage and divorce. And this also creates harmful effects on the children and on society as a whole. Now, we know also that this command covers a whole lot more than just this. Again, as we've looked at our rules for the Ten Commandments, especially the negative forms, are like the peak of a mountain. It's the worst form of the sin, but the mountain has steep, jagged slopes all the way to the base. And there's all kinds of sins that are included in that worst manifestation, and all kinds of sins that contribute to and lead towards that worst manifestation. You see, sin never wants to just stay there. It's always driving. It's driving us. So, uh, Jesus makes it penetratingly clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this isn't foreign to the intent of the seventh commandment itself when Jesus goes into the heart. 
because the 10th commandment has already done that. Remember the rule of the inside and the outside. They're never just interested in outward behavior. They're always fundamentally interested in the heart that drives the behavior. And the 10 commandment makes it clear when it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's a heart issue. It's not just the act of adultery, but the desire to do so. Jesus not only makes it clearer, but he also makes it clear that the command is against other forms of sexual sin too, not just this particular kind. So the man lusting and the woman lusted over aren't necessarily married in the way Jesus explains it because he says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. And again, what's said of the man is also said of the woman. The woman can be the luster in the way Jesus speaks. So Jesus speaks of lust literally. In this context, the word would mean an over-desire or an inordinate desire. You see, the word can be in other contexts which are positive, a passionate desire for God or God's desire for us. But here, it's an over-desire, wanting it too much, or an inordinate desire, wanting to possess someone sexually that doesn't belong to you, that you have no right to, no covenant with. And even as we go into this commandment, we know that marriage itself as an institution does not cure sexual sin. And so we plead with our young people not to view marriage as the great redeemer of sexual sins. Rosario Butterfield says it so well and really impacted me a while back when she said, look, sexual sin is just a different animal. It's just different. You know that in the way your heart operates. My heart operates. It's predatory, she says. It wants to own and use, whereas God has designed sex in marriage to know, to be known, to give, to serve. And so we can break this command even within marriage in a number of ways. We can even idolize it within marriage. I like what C.S. Lewis says years ago when he just makes this one crisp statement. He says, love is the great conqueror of lust. That's a powerful statement. Because whereas lust uses as an object Love values the person to know the person. Love is the conqueror of lust. You want to fight lust in your heart, learn to love people. The more you love people, you can't lust after them. Well, the scriptures go on to apply this in in a number of different ways. Jesus and Paul uses the word uh, pornos and porneia, the word for sexual immorality, and it makes it as broad as possible. It's the word pornos or porneia is a broad term meaning prostitution, unchastity, fornication of every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse, heterosexual and homosexual. All of it, it includes as a a great broad category. It includes pre pre and extramarital sex and sexual activity leads up to sex. And so a single person, you know, in our culture, 
A single person might ask the question, well, how far can I go? I remember being discipled as a young guy and an older guy took me to 1 Timothy 5. And 1 Timothy 5 says, look, you treat older men with respect. You treat older women like mothers. You treat uh, younger men like your brothers. You treat younger women like your sisters with absolute purity. I just looked at it, I said, I never noticed that. Like, absolute purity? Paul would say in Ephesians 5, let there not, in the NIV version, which is so powerful, let there not even be a hint among you of sexual immorality. Not even a hint? Is that possible? Not even a hint? Not even, there's not a permissible range of possibilities? A young person may ask, how far can I go? Well, the, the question in light of that is, how can we protect our sexual purity for marriage? Our culture would say that's restrictive and repressive. Our own hearts would say that. Uh, I just want to have a good time while I'm young. I mean, what's the big deal? Um, a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, I was listening to this Australian evangelist who does beach evangelism in Britain. Uh, kind of cold beaches. So he's, he's talking to secular people on a beach in Britain, and invariably, because of Christianity's reputation, matters of sex come up. And he would ask them when that would happen, well, do you view your body as a temple or as a playground. And folks that were kind of knowing where he was leading them would say, I mean, a playground, I want to have a good time. And this was about a year or so ago, so he looks at him and says, well, what about the Me Too movement? Does that not teach you anything? Doesn't it scream at you that our bodies are temples and not playgrounds? Whenever things go wrong in the area of sex, it doesn't feel like a grazed knee in a playground. It feels like desecration, doesn't it? It feels like an invasion of holy space. So it may be not even that extreme, but you know that sexual sin, what it does, it doesn't feel like a scratch in a playground which vanishes and you don't think about it anymore. In some way, either in a glaring or, or subtle way, a scar sticks with you and you have to deal with it. it. It it speaks to us that sex or that your bodies are temples, not playgrounds. Well, how about the area of pornography? And it, it's so widespread, condoned, just normal. Um, we tolerate it. I find that I get less sensitive to it, even looking for it. It affects us in so many ways. We can't kid ourselves. Well, I never visit a porn site and make ourselves feel better about that because it comes at us in a host of different avenues, even just through regular advertisements or those shows we binge watch. It's just there, and it's not content just to be there contained. It wants more space. It wants more of our hearts. It's not just a guilty pleasure. It's sinful, and it's damaging, and we can't, we can't remind ourselves of that too much. 
And so if we think about it in our sane moments, we think of what's going on in that whole dynamic. It treats people as objects. And we think of, would I want to be objectified? It gets us thinking people exist to serve and adore us, like revolve around us. It paints sex in an empty and fake way. It may get us attached to a screen sexually. It saps our hearts to serve others. It makes us compare ourselves with these airbrushed, digitized people. It creates an industry that hurts and traffics boys and girls. And so we as a people, we treat it like the plague, like the plague. There's no way we can look at it and say it's tolerable because it's all connected to all of this sin. It's devastating and we reject it as a people along with all sexual immorality. Well, what, what it cherishes, what it cherishes, that's what it counters, what it cherishes. God counters all sex outside of marriage because God designed sex to be used exclusively within marriage. It's because he views it as so powerful and precious that it restricts its use to its design, how it's designed to function and bless a marriage. And so God instituted marriage to be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And so why does it just have to be one? Why not polygamy? We see the nature of marital love is exclusive. The way it's always spoken of in scripture, it's always exclusive. There's this jealous, committed love that God has for his bride, his people. And there's this love that God wants of his people. Command one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm jealous for your affection myself. That's how marital love works. Well, why does it have to be a man and a woman? Why can't the Supreme Court adjust things to say it can be a man and a man or a woman and a man, a woman and a woman? When we look at the moral design of of marriage in the garden and how important the complement idea is. And so God looks at all these options and he says, there's not a complement for you, Adam. And he fashions one for him. In fact, the very name for man, Ish, is reflected also in the woman, Isha. They go together. The phrase given for the reason for creating Eve is a helper fit for him. The idea is that you go together, you need each other, like a lock and a key, a violin and a bow. There's a compliment there that must be a man and a woman. And as part of that, God designed them to have children and fulfill that command given in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and to multiply. And then as scripture continues to develop God's redeeming love for his people, Jesus talks about marriage in Ephesians 5 and said, wait a second, but I'm talking about a mystery that's far grander than you ordinarily think between Christ and his church. And so we see this differentiation that there's an operation of Christ and then there's the operation of his church. There's a distinction of role attached to gender And therefore, marriage is between a man and a woman. Therefore, to seek to redefine marriage is to seek really ultimately to change the gospel itself. 
But again, why is sex restricted to marriage? And this brings out the beauty and the importance of it within the marital relationship. God designed sex to be a sign and seal of the covenant relationship that a man and a woman make with each other. Can you imagine him to say, this is a sign and seal of your covenant together? It's almost a sacramental quality. It both expresses that one flesh union and also encourages that one flesh union. It both presents the one flesh union and promotes the one flesh union. By design, the physical oneness and nakedness and vulnerability of sex is only to be engaged in when a man and a woman have committed to become one naked, vulnerable in all areas of life. We're not to isolate one segment of oneness and use it on its own. It's a part of the whole. And so God looks at us and says, don't strip down physically with someone until you're willing to strip your whole life down with them, personally, spiritually, socially, emotionally, legally, economically. The physical is a part of that, to seal it and to signify it. And so God designs it to be a bond and a cement, to cement married couples together. It's, it's like super glue, some have said. It helps make a husband and wife soft and tender and affectionate and trusting of one another. Keller calls it a covenant renewal service makes it very spiritual, a covenant renewal service. It's the most powerful way for a husband and wife to look at each other and say, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you and to no one else. And we see throughout scripture that God is never squeamish or prudish towards marital sex. In fact, he delights in it. He looks at Adam and Eve, his sexual beings, the crown of his creation made in his image, and he looks at them and just says, man, it's very good. He charges married couples regularly to delight in each other sexually. God urges us in the commandment, therefore, to guard the gift in order to give sexual pleasure to your spouse and to none other. You see, sex is holy fire. In my house is this place that I build a fire. In winter, I can't wait to build a fire. I love doing that. And when I light a fire in my fireplace, it gives warmth and light. It's attractive and it's community building. But I can't say I love it so much there, I wanna light a fire in various other places of my house. It's gonna destroy my house. Sex is holy fire. In its place, it gives warmth and light. It's attractive. It's community building. But outside that place in marriage, it just burns the house down. We don't have to go far to see this. So what does this say to those of us who are single or unmarried? Does it say anything to say to those not married today? It has a whole lot to say. And I can only say just a little bit. For one, even with all we've said, God never makes marriage the end-all, be-all of life. He doesn't. He dethrones marriage and family and sex. He says, these cannot be your idols or your ultimate goods. He says marriage brings blessings, but it also brings hardships. He says singleness, with all its hardships, also brings a lot of blessings. And then he sends us his beloved son 
who lived the only truly human abundant life on earth as a single celibate man, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that life is not, necess- life is not found in sexual expression. So you trust God's good plan, you prepare for a possible mate, and you use your single state to the fullest. And it also whets your appetite for glory. And church, we seek to be a true family who loves one another well, well. So how does, how does this command culminate? Now I'm hinting at it already. How does it exalt Christ? The seventh commandment exalts Christ. As much as we said unpacking the seventh commandment as what we stated about marital intimacy, we still haven't done it justice yet. And it's crucial for marrieds and singles to know this. Sex is far more than pleasure and procreation. There's something transcendent about it because it points to ultimate reality. That's what we really want and long for. It points to this cosmic vision, this big story of a redeemer God, the beloved son, the husband who crossed all barriers and all boundaries to come after his failing sinful wife and offer his life up that she might be found, be saved, be brought into intimacy and communion. Throughout scripture, God's redeeming love is compared to a husband and wife's love and devotion to each other. The Bible starts with Adam and Eve's marriage and ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about a husband loving his wife, and he says, but it's a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. God designed that marriage, love, and intimacy to reflect Jesus and you. By faith in Christ, you enter that now. You're loved like that now, known like that now. The true groom gives his life even for our sexual sins. For our worst sin in that respect, to choose other gods instead of the true God. He dies to cover us and wash us clean, to bring us home, to give us a family, to let us know God in the intimacy that marriage can only dimly, dimly reflect, to be known and be known. It reflects the gospel. Jesus looks at the Sadducees and says, look in heaven, you're not gonna marry and be given in marriage. And sometimes people thought that made heaven a little insipid, but that's far from what it's saying. What he's saying is whatever pleasure and delight you have in your marital relationship, it's gonna be magnified a thousandfold in glory because it's a foretaste, a glimpse of the love that the body of believers are gonna have in Jesus's presence. Whatever you enjoy now, it's just a faint glimmer of the new heavens and the new earth, of being changed when you see Jesus face to face and made like him. That's the gospel, that's the gospel. And so in our marriages, husband and wife, you are working for each other's true joy. And that true joy is to be face to face with Jesus. So the question, the command is, are you helping each other? Are you helping each other? And if you're not, why? Is there sin to repent of? Is there bitterness that you're harboring? Are there unhelpful helpers out there that's tainting your intimacy with one another? Are you helping each other toward true joy, pointing each other towards Jesus and the gospel? 
singles and married, do you realize that this is all temporary and it's all a faint glimmer of heaven? And are we wetting our appetites, our hearts renewed, longing for that day and our emotions and our words and our actions contributing towards that as we're repenting of sin and believing the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ's blood to cover me and make us right before him. Is that what we're about as a people? And the seventh commandment urges us on in that. Magnifies Christ, may it be. Let's pray.